So anyway, it's lovely to see you all, and uh, we're continuing this journey through this wonderful letter of 2 Corinthians, and um, there, this passage that uh, Beck read is, is so full of uh, incredible content, but I wanted to boil it down and make it really simple, and it answers, asks and answers this, um, this really powerful question that keeps coming back, um, uh, and it's kind of like this. It's a very powerful theological question. <laughs> what am I going to do when I grow up? Uh, isn't that something, I don't know where you are, I've found with great confusion, or not, or little surprise in my life, that I often find myself thinking, uh, what am I going to do with my life when I grow up? And, and what should I be doing? And what should I be doing today and tomorrow and for the next season? Um, and, is, and then, of course, as you get older, you look back on your life and you go, is what I did back then, was that good? Was that the best I could do? And how do you make sense of that? And, uh, and does God even have a view on that? Uh, does it really matter? Uh, is it really just a luxury that we have because, you know, we've got a roof over our heads and food on our table, and so then we start wondering about, like, deep sort of, you know, is the work emotionally fulfilling and so on? Um, but if you, and it's a, it's a very important question, um, and, there's a, and there's a more profound thing than that, which is, how do I, if you're a person of faith, and again, I don't know where you are on the sort of on your journey or understanding of God's involvement in the world, but um, I, how does God fit into what you do when you grow up? Uh, and how do you work with God? And, and is God involved and interested in what we do? So um, uh, there's a little, I want to just diagram a little bit of a, a, a circular a feedback loop almost that we see in 2 Corinthians that will help us think about this. And um, the first thing to say right from the end is, you know, God has a plan for your life. You and I don't have to just work out what am I going to do when I grow up. I mean, that's sort of important, but there's, there's actually, a, in my mind, a far more exciting and compelling vision of what we're to do in this world that we get from the Bible. And once we've understood that, we can work out the process of how we enact that. And, uh, and this is, um, I don't know if you picked this up at the end of the reading. Um, look at the first verse of chapter 6, which I will highlight for you now. Um, as God's co-workers, as God's co-workers. This is a phrase Paul uses in, all, in, in his correspondence in the first letter of Corinthians and in second Corinthians to talk about what he does in the world. So the first thing I want to suggest for you to consider this morning as you think about what you're going to do when you grow up or as you look back on your life or as you just look around what am I going to do with the rest of today or tomorrow is to have before you a vision of your life that says the loving powerful creator God of the universe 
wants to work with you as a co-worker, hand in hand, working in you and through you in the world. That's pretty cool. Can I get an amen for that? Yeah, that's, that is, like, that's amazing. Okay, so now you go, um, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? How do I even make sense of God working with me? We're going to unpack this a lot more next term. So after Easter, we're going to do a whole, and I'm going to talk about this at the AGM, a whole, a whole uh, process of a spiritual pilgrimage, of thinking about how we connect deeply with God, what our particular spiritual styles are. But I want to share with you something I've learned over the last 12 months through a mentor of mine, Christian Schwartz, from Germany. Uh, and Schwartz has done this massive study on the idea of God as energy. Uh, the, the concept of energy, the particular Greek word, was coined by Aristotle uh, to uh, capture the, the idea of, which it's, it's, it's of energy as a thing that's different to power or force. Because energy both works in us, we have energy, and it can energize, it can be a noun and a verb. And the Apostle Paul and the New Testament writers take up this concept of energy and apply it to God. Uh, There are about 34 references to God as energy, God having energy, God energizing us. The New Testament translations, for a whole bunch of reasons, mostly how the Greek was translated into Latin uh, at a time before energy became more fully understood, and then how those English translations of the Latin translated these verses, uh, and then it was um, in the Western church that concept of energy was hidden behind concepts like working and power and so forth. In the Eastern church, in the Orthodox church, Uh, Because they were working from the original Greek, the concept of God as energy is far more present, and they haven't lost that. But in the Western church, um, particularly since 1057, when the two churches split, we have lost that as a central theological concept. It's very prominent in the New Testament. So for the last 12 months, I've been working with Christian and reading his stuff and studying this. Why do I say all of that? Well... uh, We're used to thinking God is love, God is light. The Bible says God is energy, personal energy or transpersonal energy. And God's energy works in us. That's that's how it works. So when I now think about God being God's co-worker, what I think about is being open to the energy of God to energize me to do the kind of things that Jesus would do if he were living my life in my place. So it's like, it's like here I am, and how does God work with me? Well, I'm plugging, it's like I'm plugging an appliance into a, a source of infinite electricity that energizes the appliance to do the work. So at one level, that's what God does with us. And I've found it, and we'll explore this more, and it, it, may, it may be an unfamiliar concept to you, a way of thinking about God, uh, and it doesn't diminish his personal uh, Reality, we experience God as person, but God is much more than just a person. There are these transpersonal dimensions of light and love and energy. So he's so this is for me very exciting to have a vision. I'm a co-worker with God. Now, how does that actually mean? Well, I can open myself up to the energy of God working in me and through me and with me to do the work that God wants me to do, to do to live the kind of life that Jesus would live 
were he living in my place? And then the path of Christian growth is discovering increasing ways to allow God to energize us and then to find the ways that he wants to use us in the world. And um, I had this discussion with a, a, a uni student during the week, a friend of one of our children's, and he was talking about which subjects he should do at university and trying to make decisions. And, and I said to him, God is amply able to tell you clearly and specifically if he wants you to choose between these two subjects for semester two. Like God is able to do that, right? For sure, he can. If God doesn't make it really, really, really clear, assume that God will bless you and be with you and energize you to live for him, whichever choice you make, and just go for it. But what matters is as you do it, you do it with God, and then he'll be with you uh, and he'll work in you whether you do economics or law or whatever it is in your choices. So that's the big vision. You're a co-worker. I'm a co-worker with God. He has a plan for your life. By the way, um, now, this is true of you no matter where you are on the spiritual spectrum, no matter how conscious you and I are of being connected to God's energy. The Bible's clear that God's energy is energizing all of reality whether you are a believer in Jesus or not. So one of the ways it's said that God upholds the whole world by his powerful word. God is continually at work to energize and uphold. So this is so wonderfully exciting. It, it's not about how much conscious faith I have right now, because God is at work and you can recognize it. But then I go to say, okay, now I want to cooperate with God. I don't want him just to be working, as it were, behind the scenes in my life. I want to go, yes, Lord, come. I want to, I want to work in step with you and be a co-worker. And that starts to change the whole way I approach life and relationships and love. And as the little mitochondrial power packs in my body wind down with increasing old age, I turned 52 this year, so this is the year of my heart attack. Uh, if, you, if you follow the media, right? I'm like, you just, it could happen, right? Like, suddenly I'm like, oh, geez, oh, I could die. But as the, as the natural energy winds down or sickness or life just beats out the sort of the, the human energy source, you know what's so wonderful? It's actually God is renewing me inwardly even while I'm outwardly wasting away, as we talked, Paul talked a bit about that last week from 2 Corinthians. So uh, that was the introduction. Here's, once you have that as a vision, this is how it actually works in great practice and how Paul builds the argument to end up with him as a co-worker. What has to happen is the first step is God changes my heart. Okay? God changes my heart. I've said this all, I've said this so many times, and I'll continue to say that Christianity is not about outside-in change. It's about inside-out change. It's about God coming and, and renewing us and changing us from the inside. And what that means is, uh, look at it, it says, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. Okay, the first thing that happens is God changes us so that from the inside out we, we fear the Lord. That doesn't mean we, we're scared because he actually is an expert at smiting. 
It means this deep sense that there's a God who is not me. <laughs> I'm not God. I like to think I am. I like to behave as though I am. But I have to abandon my, my delusions of a deity and say, no, God, you're God. I'm not. Okay, so I fear the Lord. And then the other thing that happens inside of us, in our hearts, our motives are changed from the inside out. Christ's love compels us. So our inner motivation is changed. I now fear God and I'm compelled, I'm gripped by the love of Jesus Christ for the world. Now, um, you may not... Oh, this is complicated, isn't it? Yeah. There's a lot of data in the world that we could look at and take as evidence that God is not particularly powerful or if he is powerful, isn't particularly loving. You can do that. You can go, I don't think there's a God who loves me. And I don't think there's a God who loves the world. I mean, look at the evil and the suffering in the world. And for sure, we can think that. And you may be thinking that. And you may be like, how do I, how do I know God loves me? Um, we actually need God himself to do a miracle in our hearts to help us know how much he loves us. Because I don't think humanly we can get there. I, I just don't think we can. I just think it's too hard. and it's, it, There's too much pain and suffering. But there's something that happens, and if I pass the microphone around and I ask you to, to testify to it, we've, if you're a person of faith, if you've gone through this, there's just something that in your heart of hearts, you know, Christ loves me. No matter what, like you just go, yeah, I know, man, life is hard. There's lots of pain, lots of suffering, and sometimes it feels like he's distant. But deep down, you know that Christ loves you. And you know what then happens? Once you've, once you've experienced that, he starts to grab hold of your inner motivation so that God's love for you and for everybody actually energizes and shapes and changes how you behave. That's what Paul says, Christ's love compels me. Compels me to do difficult things like forgive and seek reconciliation and persuade others that, that God loves them. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is the greatest thing. We're going to, I'm jumping ahead, but the ministry of persuading others that God loves them, that's hard. And the only reason we do it is because the best thing in the world for anybody is to know the love of Jesus for them. So uh, God changes our hearts. Uh, then what happens, and it, whoop. It flows right on from that. Um, he changes our uh, sight. Uh, or he changes how we see everything. He changes how we see everything. Um, we see that in um, verse 16. So from now on... We no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. Uh, long before worldviews became significant, what he's talking about is a whole paradigm shift in how we see the world. We put on, so when I take my glasses off, you all look uh, wrinkle-free but a little blurry. 
I see the world in a particular way. I put my glasses on. Whoa, you're all in high def now. Because the glasses, and if I had colored, these also actually filter out blue light, so you're all, everything's slightly lacking in blue. And Paul says what God does is he changes our hearts, then he gives us a new set of lenses through which we see the world. We don't see anyone from a worldly point of view as like according to the flesh, according to the outside. So he says, once I looked at Jesus according to the flesh from a worldly point of view, which is just looking at the outside, and from the outside, Jesus looked like a dangerous religious zealot uh, who was failed in his attempt to create a movement to overthrow the Romans, and uh, he, he and his followers should be uh, eradicated and killed. That's on the outside what Jesus looked like. And if you or I had lived in Jesus' time and we looked at him like that, that's the judgment we would have made. But he said something changed for Paul on the road to Damascus. He's, he's, he's going off to persecute Christians, and, and Jesus, the risen Jesus, appears to him and in that instant, he sees that his worldly, external assessment of Jesus was wrong. Because with faith, from the inside now, he can see that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. Jesus is the promised uh, one sent from God to rescue, redeem, vindicate, heal both Israel and the Gentiles and the whole world. And he sees Jesus clearly and truly. And Paul says, when God gives us a new heart, he then gives us new eyes to see people. So now we don't just see the outside of people, the old things. We see them as they are in Christ. Though we once regarded Christ uh, in this way, we do so no longer. From now on, we regard no one. No one. What does that mean? To work as a co-worker with God means to have your heart changed, fear God, be compelled by the love of Christ, then it means to see everybody th through the eyes of, and the lens of Jesus. So what does that mean? Um, there is no human being alive who is not so valued and treasured and precious to God that Jesus Christ was not pleased to die for them. And they are inestimably valuable and treasured and precious. Like that's the defining reality, that we are glorious beings who are fundamentally good, made in the image of God with an eternal destiny. So regard no one as from just the outside, like relatively valueless unless you help me, uh, only impressive while you're young and skinny and gorgeous or rich and powerful. Uh, that stuff doesn't matter. Don't even regard from a worldly point of view, from a flesh thing, life is temporary. So look, in our small group, I'll tell you how this plays out. In our small group on uh, uh, Thursday night, we we're talking and praying about the situation in Ukraine. And uh, sometimes um, I can make comments that are piercingly insightful, if somewhat uncomfortable. So we're chatting, and I said, well, here's the thing. Everyone who's dying in the Ukraine now was going to die anyway. Is that a comforting thought? Everyone's like, oh, I'm going to... From a worldly point of view, you see, that's how when you talk to dictators, you listen to how Stalin wrote about, um, about the, the starvation, the Holdemor he orchestrated in the Ukraine. Like, people don't matter. They were going to die anyway. They're peasants. It doesn't matter if you kill a million or two million or three million. 
people are just expendable. As long as it's not you or your family, they're all going to die anyway. Okay? That's when you see the world without the lens of Jesus Christ. That actually is how we all default. That's how we... And you look at the history of... But when you put the lens of Jesus Christ on, the 90-year-old who gets buried under rubble and dies in Ukraine is as eternally valuable and inestimably precious and destined for an eternity with God as a, as a 10-year-old living life free in Balmain. The Russian soldier who fired the missile that landed in the, in the building and killed the 90-year-old, uh, he is as valuable and loved and treasured by Jesus as the 90-year-old. The Putin who is orchestrating the war in collaboration with the Russian Orthodox Church and the Patriarch and, uh, and who's caught up in all kinds of stuff that I don't begin to understand because I'm no foreign policy expert, uh, though there are a lot of those on Facebook now. It's quite remarkable. Um, uh, Putin is so loved and treasured by God that Jesus Christ was happy to die for him. He's as valuable as I am. He's as valuable as Zelensky is. That's confronting, hey? Like, that's amazing. Like, no other worldview has that radical view of the equal value of everybody. The intellectually handicapped person. The older person with Alzheimer's whose personality dissolves. Like, everyone. Like, that's, that's how we see the world. When you put on the lens of Jesus and he gives us new eyes to see. And let's get personal. When you look in the mirror, that's how you are to see yourself. And sometimes that can be the hardest of all. Because my external is so present to me. My failings, my inadequacies, my lack of all kinds of things. This is so obvious to me. My flaws, the shortness of my life my decrepitude, it's just so obvious. But then if I regard myself through the lens of Jesus, I see in the mornings when I look in the mirror an eternally glorious being who is so loved by God that Jesus was happy to die for me. And you, ha, oh, boy, that changes stuff. Okay, so that's uh, our second point. And the next two will probably take a little longer, I jest. Um, uh, the next thing that happens is um, God heals our relationships, starting with himself. So once how I see Jesus and how I see myself and how I see everyone else has changed, what happens is that I, um, I'm reconciled to God. Uh, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ Jesus. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. The heart of what has gone wrong with the world is if God is the source of infinite, transpersonal, sustaining, loving energy, when we are disconnected from that, 
And when we misdirect the use of that energy to destroy and to kill and to be selfish, we muck up the world. That's what happens. When I'm disconnected from God, when God isn't guiding me and shaping me, giving me a new heart, helping me see the world the way it is and helping me direct my energies in love and service of others, I become selfish. This is what the text says, you see. Um, uh, um, he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. This is the great problem of our world, that, that we're fundamentally selfish. We live for ourselves, the Bible assumes, because we're disconnected from God. I don't want God to be God. I don't want to submit to Him. I don't want to trust Him. I struggle in all kinds of ways to do that, so, but He's still at work in my life, so I take all that God-given energy that flows through me, and I use it to try and make my own life work, and that means I kill and I destroy in all kinds of ways. And uh, God says what will happen is he'll reconnect us to himself. And when that happens, he heals and reconnects us to others. And he brings reconciliation. The greatest reconciliation that is, well, the only source of lasting eternal reconciliation is uh, being reconciled to our God. Because if I know that God has forgiven me, then I can forgive you. And if you know that God has forgiven you, then you can forgive me. And if you know that God will hold everyone to account, myself and yourself included, then I can break the cycle of vengeance. And I, don't I can trust God to work everything out without going to war to accomplish my own ends in my marriage, in my workplace, in my community, in my political party, in my nation state. God heals our relationships. I've spent 27 years working full-time in a variety of churches with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And I can't tell you the number of people who have sat in front of me and we've talked and prayed and cried about broken relationships and heartache and mess and all the tragedies of life. And I can't tell you the joy, well, that's hard work. That is painful over many years to walk alongside and with other people's pain. But I'll tell you the difference between me and a counselor and a therapist and a, psychology, a psychologist, as wonderful and good as those are, is that in the end, what, in my work with people over 28 years, what I have to offer people is, a, is, is being reconnected to the God who loves them and who can flood their lives with healing and joy and reconciliation. And, and you can do the psychology, and that's wonderful, and that's good, but that only takes you so far. In the end, what we need is God and his love in our lives. We need to be at peace with God because then we can be at peace with others. That's why Paul, isn't it funny? He's writing to a Christian church, and he says, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. He's urging and saying, don't. Hey, guys, this is really important. How could I receive God's grace in vain? Well, I could take it for granted, and I could not lean into it. I could not receive it. I could not be reconciled with God, and I could keep being selfish. He says, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't. God loves you. Like, absorb it, live in it, yield to it, surrender to it. Be reconciled to God, and then he'll talk. Be reconciled to each other. 
Be peacemakers in the world. Be reconciled to yourself. Like, we have complicated relationships with ourselves. We can be at war with ourselves and hate parts of ourselves. And he says, no, no, God will heal all of that. And look, some of the earthly relationships will not be healed this side of heaven. Right? My brother died before I could be in any way, shape, or form reconciled to him, really. And that's sad. But I know God's going to work it out. I mean, I, I also have a cognitive bias. I have an, what's called an optimism bias. I like to call it faith. <laughs> I just, for whatever reason, given the background I've grown up in, I just go, I, I feel such peace that God will work everything out. He just will. And, and along the way, there'll be hardships and some things won't work out and some relationships will never be fixed and healed. But God is at work, right? You go, oh, gee, that's the path of joy and takes the pressure off, doesn't it? So you've got to know that if you want to know what you're going to do when you grow up. Uh, at one level, whatever you do can either be wonderful or awful. If, you, if it's going to be wonderful and full of God, then you need to start with a heart change. You need daily to put on God's sets of glasses to see everybody in your life, including yourself, the way God sees them. And then you need to be uh, um, uh, trusting that God heals relationships. And then what he actually wants you and I to do is, um, uh, is, is the, the job he gives us is to be his ambassadors that's what you were to do when you grow up. Here's where we get to. Boom. You wanted to know what you should do when you grow up in life? You want to know what you should do day by day, moment by moment? This is it. You, should, you and I are called. Uh, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. That's your calling in life. That's my calling. What do you want to do? Well, you want to be an ambassador. The person, the woman, the man, the young person through whom God is making his appeal to others to be reconciled to himself, to have their hearts changed. Yeah, you're an ambassador. That's a wonderful thing. You don't have to wait for the um, prime minister to appoint you as the ambassador somewhere. The creator God of the universe wants you to be his ambassador or when you go to work tomorrow, when you go home this afternoon, when you... Um, hang out in your sports club when you are online you're Christ's ambassador now we could there's a whole sermon whole lot of stuff we can do about what it means to be an ambassador but it means you represent someone else and people will judge the worthiness of God based on the integrity of your life as an ambassador isn't that exciting <laughs> People will go, you and I, we are the little walking, talking models of, of how much God loves the world. And we as a church are, as a community, we're an ambassadorial community in to be a working model of a new heart, of a new way of seeing everybody, of reconciliation. So what would you like to be an expert in? being an ambassador for Jesus Christ so that people can come to know how much he loves them. Because there's nothing better in the world than knowing that you are eternally loved. Now, what does that mean for what subject you should do at uni, what job you should do? 
if you, if you go at everything in life as an ambassador for Jesus Christ, you will find whatever you do is full of eternal significance and is never wasted in God's economy. Sometimes it might pay you well, sometimes it might cost you a lot. Sometimes it might be emotionally rewarding, other times it might be just tough. Whether you're unemployed or on the fast track to an extraordinary corporate career, whether you're staying home looking after little kids for a season, whether you're confused about what the heck it's all about, whether you're retired, you're an ambassador for Jesus. That's your primary calling out of which everything else flows. <sighs> I don't know. It's okay, isn't it? I think that's kind of good news. Don't you think? I think it's good news. Yeah, it's a little daunting, but good. And we're in it together. And the first 50 years are probably the hardest. So um, <laughs> let's, let's pray. <laughs> Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you that you have loved us with this extraordinary, extravagant love. And, and that you want us to be your co-workers and, and specifically to work with you as your ambassadors in the world. Thank you that you've reconciled us to yourself by dying for us. Thank you that you change how we see everyone and everything and thank you that you change our hearts. And I pray for us this morning that you will change. You'll, you'll, you'll just fill us with lots of joy and hope and anticipation and faith for this wonderful journey that, and calling that you have uh, ahead of us. And we ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.